Hello, and welcome to the Natural Evolution Podcast, produced by Rebel Health Tribe. I'm Michael, and I'll be your host. Together, we will be hearing inspiring stories of healing and transformation, learning from some of the brightest minds in the world of functional medicine and holistic wellness, and exploring the world's best health-related products, services, tools, and resources. And we are live with what's going to be a very fun episode of the podcast. I was just exchanging France and Italy stories with Dr. Krasian. I am joined today with by Dr. Datis Krasian. Thank you for being here. Pleasure, Mike. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. I'm pretty sure everybody in our audience is pretty well-versed on your work and what you do in your books. But for those who don't know, Dr. Datis Krasian is a Harvard Medical School trained award-winning clinical research scientist, academic professor, and world-renowned functional medicine healthcare provider. He's an associate clinical professor at Loma Linda University School of Medicine and a researcher at Harvard Medicine School, Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital, in addition to writing several books and having, I've lost track of how many different practitioner trainings now at the Krasian Institute website. So a very busy man doing a lot of really important work. And we always appreciate your time being here, having these conversations. So there's a lot of different angles we could go with this and a lot of different conversations we could have. And I think today we're going to focus on some outside the box thinking when it comes to stubborn or chronic GI symptoms and gut problems. And I think a lot of people might know, you know, your work on thyroid and your work on the brain and brain health and might not see how those two things might be linked to the function of their gut or their digestion. So maybe we could kind of start there just a little bit in the overlap between thyroid function and thyroid health and or just brain and neurological connections to chronic gut uh, sure. challenges, Where, wherever you'd want to kick off there would be great. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that is an issue is people do all the right things and then they may not be able to resolve their leaky gut or have their gut issue. And like by doing the right thing would mean like they clean up their diet, they take digestive enzymes, they take probiotics, they eat healthy. And despite all those things, they have ongoing gastrointestinal issues. So then that becomes, you know, then they feel like they're the weird patient. Like they're so then they go see the practitioner and they're all confused and they end up going from one supplement to the next. And pretty soon they have an apothecary at their house with all these different nutraceuticals and they're trying all these different recipes and bone broths. But despite all that, their gut's not getting better. So that's a whole different level of a patient that has a gut issue. So as a practitioner, I can tell you if I see a patient come in and I see they have a gastrointestinal disorder, my first question clinically is, do they deserve it or do they not deserve it? <laughs> so that's just a funny way. Internally, I'm thinking of it. Like if they're eating processed foods and fast foods and hmm. don't eat well and having lots of inflammation and you're, you're expecting them to have bloating, distension and all these issues. Yeah. The majority yeah. of the patients, I think we all see as practitioners in the functional medicine community is we see the ones that don't deserve it. They're the, they're the ones that, you know, are completely gluten dairy free. And, you know, that would be a first place for most people to start as far as most common food sensitivities, but they're gluten dairy free. They may even be an autoimmune paleo diet. They're, you know, eating really healthy foods. They're eating organic. They're taking digestive enzymes every single meal. They have a whole cocktail of probiotics. They have a whole ritual of gut issues. And despite all that, they don't have got a system restored. So that's the different, that's the different population. That's the population we should probably talk about because they're, yeah. They're being missed also in the functional medicine community. Now, in the functional medicine community, there's different levels of practitioners. So the very novice new practitioner that really doesn't understand it very well, they'll just be like, well, you're taking the wrong supplements. You need this megaspore or you need this super enzyme or you need this one other thing. And then they just really try to think, well, you just don't have the right supplements. And that's always a red flag too. If you're a practitioner and if you come with a chronic gut issue, and their practitioners make the assumption, you just need like a better probiotic or something. They, they really do not get it. Like red flag. Okay. You got to go to that. someone who's looking at this the next level. So then the question is like, why would someone that eats really well, takes every single support for their gut that's available, has tried everything, still have persistent gut issues. And then you're left with a list of a few things that are important, right? And that's the list you should probably go over. So let me go from like the most common to least common things that impact it. And you have to understand also with the gut, the gut is impacted by everything, right? So the gut is impacted by mm -hmm. our immune system or systemic immune system. And the microbiome communicates with our other mucosal barriers too. So our microbiome communicates with our pulmonary mucosa, communicates with our sinus mucosa, it even communicates with our blood-brain barrier, 
So it communicates with T cells and B cells all throughout our body, responds to the skin. There's even skin. There's a skin microbiome access, lung microbiome access, brain microbiome access, right? Mesopharyngeal microbiome access. So it's, you can have your gut activate and inflame unrelated to your gut having a food trigger, right? Which most people constantly move mm. every single food and hoping that's going to resolve it. But so that's one thing. And then the gut responds, every single mucosal cell has receptors for every major hormone, testosterone, est- estrogen, progesterone. So the microbiome can be completely impacted by endocrine dysfunction. The microbiome is its initial barrier. There's a thing called immune tolerance or unrelated to leaky gut, things like regulatory T cells and dendritic cells have an issue. There's intimate relationships between the liver and the hepatic microbiome access. Mm-hmm. So for some people, when they do everything for the gut and the gut's not healthy, the question is like, well, what's impacting the gut versus the gut being the problem, right? So that's like the first obvious thing that I think from, for some people when they hear it, they're like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Why didn't I think about that before? Well, and part of the reason is because, you know, the world of the world of nutrition is focused on immediate protocol mm-hmm. and then convention. And then there's, and they're still not thinking outside the box and systemic. And, and even though it's in the literature, it's a very clear pathophysiological mechanism, just not being incorporated. So that's, that's the story I'd like to go into. Are you, you good at that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I followed. I'd never heard of liver microbiome. That was a new one for me. I've heard of the skin and a lot of the other ones you mentioned, but I never heard of the liver microbiome. And from what I gathered there, when you were you were saying, you know, like the the mucosal layers are all related. Like there's the gut, there's the the pulmonary, the nasal, and so if somebody has you know like a chronic cough or chronic nasal congestion, like their head's always congested or nose always congested, can that and they might not link that to like oh I have a GI symptom. Is that usually a red flag? Like is that a sign that you know if this is inflamed or causing like excess mucus production or anything like that? Is it possible that that's also going on in the gut, like without actually looking at the gut, or are they not that? Yeah, and the main mecha- end? yeah, they're, they're like those relationships, and, and the main mechanism is to impact what's called oral tolerance. Oral tolerance, hmm. how your gut reacts to different things. So, you know, in the gut, we have dendritic cells that hmm. sample food products. So, for example, you take the liver. The liver has Cooper cells, which are like the macrophage or antigen presenting cell, where they just kind of sample everything that comes into the liver they directly communicate with the gut dendritic cells. And then you have dendritic cells in the lung barrier and gut barrier. So like if you get reactive dendritic cells in your pulmonary area, those, they send messengers that also impact your gut barrier. So you could have someone, for example, has persistent reactions to food proteins because they're constantly getting exposed to respiratory inhalants that are triggering their immune system, making them, making them revved up. So once those, those, those cells, messenger molecules that get sent out in the lungs from the inhalant toxin they go systemic. Yeah. And so the same cells located elsewhere would pick up those signals and trigger an inflammatory response. Is that yeah, exactly. accurate? That's right. Okay. And, and, you know, when we look at the gut, there's different aspects of gut function. One is the inflammatory immune response on sensitiveness to things. That's its own issue. That's where all mm. these different microbiome connections, mm. liver cells and Cooper cells and respiratory upper issues can all, can all activate the sensitivity and reactivity of the gut and all tolerance. There's also other things that are more related to intestinal motility where a person can move their food properly, right? And then there's another mm-hmm. mechanism of autonomic function, which is can they make digestive enzymes? Can they have smooth muscle contractions? So then I guess to, to go into deeper, like how we think about this clinically is, okay, so if the gut's dysfunctional, what part of the gut is dysfunctional? Is it, they're just inflamed all the time? Like, and that would be where, for example, other mucosal things will come in. If they're inflamed all the time, meaning they're Everything they eat causes an inflammatory reaction and they can never fix their leaky gut or intestinal barrier. Mm-hmm. Then the question is, what other things are upregulating the dendritic cells? What other physiological mechanisms are? So that, so that might be where you go. And then dendritic cells can also be dramatically impacted by stress levels. Circadian rhythms and sleep have a huge impact on, on the gut immune response with uh, dendritic cells. So you, you can find someone, for example, who's got multiple inhalant allergies that they're, you know, not getting to anything about. They maybe, maybe they're working in their office. It's filled with dust. And then mm-hmm. you check their panel. On those little plug-in machines that spew the poison into the air that yeah, smells right. nice. And maybe, uh, you know, you check the, right. check the blood work and they're off the chart with, you know, dust mm-hmm. and other inhalants. And then they constantly breathe those and they can't really get their gut inflammatory immune response down because they just think it's food related. And then they start cutting off every single food. And as they limit their foods, they lose their microbiome diversity. 
which you actually mm-hmm. use what you need to help keep those interests yeah. healthy. So now which causes a self-perpetuating cycle yeah. and the toxin they've been breathing in has stayed the whole time. Yeah. It's like, you'll see a person that chronic yeah. got inflammation and you go, Hey, what's, what other complaints do you have? I have chronic sinusitis. What, what are you doing for that? Oh, nothing really. I just do like, you're like, okay, well that may be a role and why your cut may not be calming down. So, so the way that dendritic cells and the inflammatory response to me works is a systemic. So if people have gut inflammatory issues, you know, you want to look at these other variables as well, right? They can be a factor. So it may not just be gut-based. And uh, those, are, those are really important for the people constantly dealing with food sensitivities and reactions and, and have constant leaky guts. Now, it could also be though, and this is an overlooked area, there's intestinal autoimmunity, and this totally gets overlooked in the healthcare system. So, and even in the functional medicine, preventive medicine model, there are a lot of people that have chronic gastrointestinal issues that actually have autoantibodies to their gut proteins. So, is that like Crohn's or IBD? Or are you talking more specific types of cells? Or yeah, so it could be Crohn's, it could be ulcerative colitis, right? It could be unnamed. You can have antibodies to the smooth muscles of the gut. So, like actomycin really? bodies or the smooth muscles of the gut. Yep. You can have those reactions. So, that could contribute to like SIBO situations. Oh, yeah, for sure. There, there's lots of people okay. that show lots of people have SIBO really have autoimmune reactivity to smooth muscles through their nerves in their gut. They'll have neurofilament, uh, enteric nervous system protein antibodies. People can have antibodies to their gut mucosa, like ASCA. Are those all on the Cyrex array? No, they're not all on there. No. Some of those are no. on there, like ASCA ANCAs on there, but they're not all on there. And, and some of these aren't even celiac. And some of these uh, autoantibodies aren't even commercially available. They're just available in research studies. And this, yeah. is, this is one of the things that's very frustrating. But typically, your biggest clue that that's happening is there's other, also other autoimmunity. Like it's mm-hmm. pretty rare to have someone just have intestinal autoimmunity and yeah. nowhere else. So we can measure things like actomycin antibodies and myelin basic protein and myelin oligodendrocytic protein, things like alpha beta tubulin and ASCA ANCA, like we, which are the most common ones for also Crohn's, can measure things like transcontaminase, and they may show up. And if they do, then like, okay, well, you also, you know, this, you have an intestinal autoimmunity, and that's why you really have an issue with ongoing gut issues. But there's a whole list of other gut proteins that have been published in research studies that you can't get a commercial lab test for. So then your biggest clue that that may be going on is you don't test for those antibodies, but you have a, you have an autoimmunity. Like you have full blown yeah. arthritis, which is, you know, if that's mm-hmm. been identified or you have Hashimoto's or you have type one diabetes. And in those cases, sometimes you have to just go, okay, well, it's, it's possible and highly probable since you're doing everything right and you can't calm down your gut issue that you may have some of these non-identified target or, or some of these target proteins in your gut that may have autoimmunity that there isn't commercial testing for yet. Yeah, you'll see typically as their autoimmunity is good, their gut is good. And then when their autoimmunity is bad, that gets bad. And then they may make the assumption, well, my autoimmunity, my rheumatoid arthritis flared up because my gut was bad. Right. Mm -hmm. But maybe not. It's more likely that the same trigger caused both of them. Exactly. So maybe they had issues (laughs) and stress issues and I don't know, something else that triggered their autoimmunity. That's viewing a symptom as a trigger. Right. Like see, the gut flare-up is a symptom of the same thing as the, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, and yeah, mm-hmm. when you have people like linked cognitively, like, oh, the gut is always going to trigger the autoimmune response, then, then you would start to believe that. And that's the only like lens you're looking for because you're going, well, yeah, my, my rheumatoid arthritis, my Hashimoto's, my type 1 diabetes, my MS flares up when my gut's bad. But t- like we said, that could be a collateral. Yeah. The autoimmunity is actually getting triggered. And wherever you have target mm-hmm. antibody responses, maybe it's your joint, maybe it's your thyroid, maybe it's your pancreas, but also maybe it's your, your microbiome proteins, maybe it's your enteric nervous system proteins, and that's what's flaring it up. So that's one, one really, really common thing. And then in those scenarios, it's like, okay, first of all, stop thinking the way you're thinking. Like you're seeing this association with your gut issues, then your autoimmunity, other autoimmunity is going to be flaring up, and you're mm-hmm. making this this. Uh, assumption that it's your gut that went bad and then you're constantly looking what did i eat what did i eat what did i eat maybe it has nothing mm-hmm. to do with what you ate <laughs> yeah eating, right? so it could be the really stressful two weeks you just had or the three days of really bad sleep or the exposure at work or the chemical yeah any mm-hmm. so that's more common than i think you i think you would think uh, yeah. in real practice and once people understand that connection then they can start to get to more answers because now they're not thinking all their 
autoimmune issues or gut issues, and they start to think of it really as an autoimmune response, and then what trigger their autoimmunity versus what trigger their gut. And, and most common thing people do is when they gut gets triggered is what I ate, right? So they're constantly looking for what did I eat, what I eat, what I eat, and that may not even be the, the problem at all. Maybe it's maybe it's your lifestyle. Maybe you overtrained at the same time you didn't get sleep. Maybe you're really sensitive to benzene and you were in a building with lots of cigarette smoke for too long for your immune system to handle and that triggered your response. And maybe you didn't trigger it that second, maybe it triggered it the next day because that's how the immune system works, right? So that's a common thing I think that everyone should know about with chronic gut issues. So if you have chronic gut issues and you have chronic inflammation and nothing really helps and maybe you have chronic SIBO, no one can figure out why you actually have SIBO. It's possibly you have autoantibodies and you may have never had that, any of the intestinal autoantibodies screened or you just could have one of these that have not been commercially available. And not every target protein in the gut has been identified for autoimmunity. Yeah. Not it's, only are they not all testable, we don't even know what they all are to be definitely. able to test them. Yeah. I mean, the world of autoimmunity clinical practice and the world of autoimmune research are two different things. And what we like to do is like make it seem like it all makes sense. And we have all the tests for it and we have the answers and then we have the protocol. And then when you actually dive into the autoimmune research, even let's just say gut autoimmunity, you're like, I've never even heard of these proteins, never even heard of these autoantibodies. What is this yeah. stuff? And I think a lot of practitioners steer clear of that world just due to the overwhelm and like the lack of like, what do I do with this? How do I act on this? What do I... And it seems overwhelming. I mean, there's a few, like you're one of a few that I know that do both sides of the coin. Like they're buried in the research and they're, they have a clinical practice. There's not many. And I think it gets really overwhelming really quickly. That's yeah. It's like, what do I do? What do I do with this information? Yeah. A lot of times, because the studies aren't designed necessarily, the researcher is not a clinician. So it's not like, here's what's happening and here's how you fix it. It's here's what's happening. Right. They're just <laughs> trying to figure out what's happening. <laughs> Exactly. And I have to tell you, there's times when like, I'm really focused into the research community and going to conferences and hanging around researchers and thinking about my next project and doing all that. And if, you, if you're in that world for a while, you think, oh my God, people have no chance, no hope. And then you realize, well, actually people do and people do get respond and get better. And then when you're in the clinical world for like, sometimes I'll just focus in the clinical world for a couple of weeks, a few weeks, just living in that world in a different identity. And it's like, oh, all that research stuff, like once they clean up their diet and do some lifestyle things, it makes a huge difference. They don't even understand what the possibilities are. And then it's like- It sounds like two alternate realities completely. Two alternate realities. And you can get depressed yeah. either one of them if you go in the deep dive. And But but in reality- Well, I think the physiology of it is so complex. It can get so incredibly complex and overwhelming and seem hopeless. And then what's really cool is one, the human body is extremely resilient. And two, the things that, I mean- I went through my, an arc when I was working with clients myself. When I first started, I only knew the fundamentals, so that are the foundational things. So that's the only thing my clients would get to do. Then I started learning lab testing and more complex things and supplement protocols and functional medicine things. And, and then my clients got really complex. And then my approach was really complex. And then it was like, let's see how complex we can make this thing. And then what I learned is that it's still the foundational things that move the needle for most people. Yeah. Which gives hope, like that gives hope back when you lose it, when you're in the research world, knowing yeah. that like they're test subjects. If those people probably have a really disrupted circadian rhythm, they probably have high stress, unresolved trauma. They probably have toxic exposures. They're probably not eating an ideal diet. And then you look at their physiology and the studies that they're in and you're like, oh man, this is doomed. Yeah. But if you flipped all those switches on those people, that would look differently. And we may not understand, right? Like every yeah. single mechanism by which that takes place, but you know, do X, Y, Z things. And most of the time, this is going to calm down a little. Am yeah. I oversimplifying that or is no, that? No, you're making a very good point. And that's the thing too, <laughs> is we're never going to understand all of it. And there's never going to be all the commercial testing for all of it, but we do have really fundamental principles of how things work. So for example, we may not be able to, someone who's got chronic gastrointestinal issues and chronic inflammation in their gut and multiple food sensitivities, they can never fix it. Taking as much glutamine and probiotics and kombucha and bone broth and mm -hmm. restriction and, yeah. you, you know, maybe it's an autoimmune response. So every time your immune system flares up, you get destruction of your gut and it's unrelated to that. And once they may understand that connection, now they start to look at other things besides, you know, their gut and they start to really think about their lifestyle and their sleep and other triggers that may be there then that may finally make that connection for them where they understand their gut. It's not this mysterious thing. It's not so debilitating. And they start to see that, yeah, you know, actually it's when I, when my autoimmune system just gets improved overall, that's when I necessarily feel better. That doesn't have to be just this gut relationship. But that's one key thing I hope we get across. And that's not the only thing that, that is involved with chronic gut issues. 
but that is definitely one of the most common ones with chronic intestinal inflammation. So the people that have like chronic intestinal inflammation and chronic leaky gut and food sensitivities, for some of them less than other ones, they may have other mucosal triggers and other, other patterns that are impacting their gut mucosa. Maybe it's a combination of hormones and blood sugar dysregulation and stress. All those things that impact the microbiome makes their immune system not really develop the best tolerance. And if they really think of themselves as more than just the gut and then look at the whole physiology and go after that, that may finally fix the gut. And for other people, it's, more, it's much more aggressive which is really more of the intestinal autoimmune response. But the problem is we have is we have people that like teach functional medicine and people that write books and do stuff and say, the gut is everything. Start with the gut. And that's like, well, in those, in those cases where the gut is reactive to everything else, it's, it's going to completely fail. But so that's such a common health philosophy that it does lead to these patients that the gut is actually secondary to these other mechanisms. And then they become the weird or difficult. And they're not difficult, they're not weird. They're just they don't fit that paradigm of always start with the gut. And if you fix the gut, you fix everything. Right. And all of their interventions are focused directly at the gut Yeah. where the gasoline is being put on that from somewhere else. So like you're really just scooping water out of a boat with holes in it and not addressing the holes in the boat or the, you know, the thing feeding. And you mentioned hormones. I've had men mostly kind of question the connection like of their hormones linked to their GI symptoms or their gut function. And I tell them, just ask some ladies about that because some of my clients, their digestion was very different at certain times of the month and that they would often get it backwards too, because of the programming from what they've learned a lot of is that my gut's really messed up. So my PMS was bad this month, or like my gut's really messed up right now. So my hormones are out of whack. And it was usually the other way around. If it's cyclical and the gut gets messed up on the same four days of the month, every month, it's not the gut doing the hormones. It's the hormones doing the gut. Exactly. Yeah. And you make a good point. It's much easier to see with women that are having menstrual cycle fluctuations, yeah. and big spikes, because then you can like fully see the relationship mm-hmm. with, with men. It's much more difficult because they don't have those big, huge spikes of hormones. Big swings. Yeah. You know, the little, little levels of fluctuation throughout the day, but nothing dramatic, you know? And that's another thing. Like when you look at the gut, hormones have a huge impact on various target proteins and target cells in the gut. So for example, gastrointestinal motility, the ability to cause smooth muscles to contract, the ability to activate the enteric nervous system to move food and control valves. So you don't have things like SIBO and have normal bowel movements. They're totally 100% dependent upon thyroid hormones. Well, actually one of the most common symptoms that people have subclinical hypothyroidism is chronic constipation. So there's a, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a large population of people reported in, in the thyroid disease literature where their only spreading symptom is chronic constipation that nothing has helped. And they don't have weight, lo- weight gain issues. They don't have hair loss. They don't have the cold hands, cold feet. They just have chronic constipation. And someone finally, not enough for someone to go, oh, you should get your thyroid checked. And then what they find is when those people get their thyroid check. Uh, well, then four <laughs> practitioners later, someone tests more than just their TSH. Right. And then you can go deeper <laughs> to like, are they actually the hormones, all those things. But, but for a lot of them in the, in the conventional literature, it's just, they're actually just hypothyroid. And as soon as they go on some replacement, Interesting. Their motility improves. So like just <laughs> overnight, like, boom, yeah. I have gut function. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, yeah. that's a, a very common presentation of subclinical hypothyroidism. So that's how thyroid hormones, for example, impact the entire nervous system. But then you have like reproductive hormones like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. They help regenerate the mucosal lining. They help uh, the anabolic effect in the mucosa so it can repair and regenerate. Because, you know, we're having some degree of destruction of our mucosal cells every day from just the inflammatory response and exposing dietary proteins to the gut. That all triggers an immune response to some degree. And, you know, cells die off but in a normal response too, but cells have to regenerate. So if, if you have a male that has like really low testosterone or a low growth hormone, if you have a female that has abnormal progesterone levels or estrogen levels, that cavity has an impact on how the gut mucosa regenerates. And every single one of these hormones, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, DHEA, T3, T4, these hormones all impact the dendritic cells and the regulatory T cells of the gut. So hormones have a role too. Yeah. So that's and the regular regulatory T cells for people who might not be up on their immunology terms is those are the cells that kind of quell autoimmune responses or do the self non-self kind of overseeing a bit, right? Like when those are low or not functioning properly, 
there's much more likelihood of autoimmune yeah. attacks, right? Exactly. And these regulatory yeah. T-cells are really worth where they're at. And there's regulatory B-cells too, but regulatory T-cells determine how aggressive the immune response will be and if it will even respond and if it's going to calm down. So regulatory T-cells basically control suppressor T-cells and helper T-cells. Suppressor T-cells calm down the autoimmune response, helper T-cells activate the autoimmune response. So they, they regulate that. So, so it's like the gas pedal breaks. Yeah. And yeah. it's very clear with uh, the research in autoimmunity, they dysfunction in autoimmune disease. And the less dysfunctional they are, the less your autoimmune disease expresses itself. And the more dysfunctional they are, the more autoimmune disease you have. And in animal studies, if they cause T-cells to dys- dysregulate, the person will develop autoimmunity. And it's pretty like that clear. It's like that by uh, how much of a central role they have, have, how much of an effect they have on the system. So hormones really have an impact on these T-reg cells. And as they continue to work on drugs and things that impact these regulatory T-cells, that might be how they may make a drug that can dampen autoimmunity in the gut at some level from a pharmaceutical world. From a natural medicine world, it's basically, you know, things that optimize regulatory T-cells would be hormones and vitamin D and lifestyle factors that increase things like growth factors, like exercise, healthy emotions, those things will have an impact on these regulatory T-cells. But it's a combination of getting those regulatory T-cells and under control of those dendritic cells that react to all the other mucosal barriers under control in autoimmunity. So hormones have, have that role. And you can have, for, and also like when men have low testosterone, their regular T-cells are not as responsive and functional. So lots of men have low testosterone. Lots of men have hormonal balances when they you know, finally get checked. And uh, the interesting thing about that is that the most common cause of that is that these testicular cells called lytic cells have no antioxidants. So the cells, the serotonin cells and lytic cells that are involved with uh, helping produce testosterone and sperm, they have no actual antioxidant protection. So they're very, very, very susceptible to inflammation. Wow. So when men okay. get inflamed, these cells literally degenerate very, very quickly. And they're defenseless. Yeah, defenseless. So, you, so yeah. A, lot of, a lot of men that have primary hypogonad are actually having it from too much oxidative stress, you know, too much inflammation. And a lot of this came out of the infertility research world because you're like, why do these men have abnormal sperm? And they find out, well, they also have- We've had some there. scary stats around- trends in men, testosterone levels, fertility, infertility rates, all of that type of stuff. I read an article a few weeks ago that like on this current trajectory, we're like a few generations away from not having people because of the the steep decline in like fertility rates and testosterone levels and and all these kind of things. Now, obviously no one can predict that something's going to continue at such a sharp situation, but like I see no indicators that the massive things that are contributing to it are changing on any real level. So it's like, maybe, but there's some pretty scary stuff. I've read that like one in two almost couples now are seeking fertility help. It's a big issue. Um, Yep. And then when they look at fertility causes, there's a male factor and female factor. And the current mm -hmm. data is showing one third are female factors, one third are male factors, and one third are combined. <laughs> yeah, because uh, to be the singular factor, it probably has to reach a certain tipping point. But if both of them are like not all the way to that tipping point, but yeah. sort of, then the total whatever we're this is a really rough metaphor, but the total bucket yeah. is high enough that the thing's broken. Yep. Yeah. So, so to find two people that are healthy enough, both of them, yeah, to make kids now yeah. is less than half of the time that right. couples and it's also not just get together. Money. It's also making healthy children, right? I mean, yeah, healthy like, children. For example, the rates of autism have skyrocketed. Ish, yeah. Research is showing autism is developing during fetal development. It can actually determine markers for brain inflammation, neuroinflammation during pregnancy. Really? Yes. And In uh, the fetus? In the fetus. And then new studies have been published where they immediately do brain scans and they see changes in white matter development during pregnancy. And they can actually predict autism with hearing tests within the first few weeks when a child is born, even before any vaccination or any of those factors. So, wow. and uh, there's a strong link to maternal health and these risks too. So it's not just like, hey, you're really pregnant. It's like, you got to be healthy enough to have a healthy child, a healthy child. Yeah, that's, that's another, another level. Have the baby one, <laughs> have a healthy baby two, and 
childhood chronic disease rates are skyrocketing too. And some of that, you know, I'm sure stems from in utero before birth. I recorded a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a fertility specialist that that works with couples that are having a really hard time conceiving. And she was telling me some statistics on the increase of certain problems with people who use some form of medically assisted pregnancy. There was a term for it. I don't not just IVF, there's other interventions, but all interventions total, because in my simple mind of how I understand these things around fertility, it's being unable to reproduce is a sign. That's an action. That's the nature. That's the body being like, this is not a good time. This is not a good place. You're under too much stress. This environment is unsafe. Something is unsafe. So then the hormones are out of whack. Everything's out of whack. And it's basically the way to not bring kids into an environment that's you're either incapable of growing them or raising them or birthing them or having them safely. And then we override this. But oftentimes when she told me her her clients, she's like, no, no one ever told them there's another way. So they they override it. And then they give them the IVF, they give them this, they give them this, they give them this, but they don't talk to them about any of the things that contributed to them being unable to have kids in the first place. So then they're pregnant doing the same things they were doing to not be able to be pregnant. Yet we overrode the the warning light. And then they grow and birth a child into that same situation. I'm not trying to throw dirt on anybody or criticize. People do what they know. And she said, no one tells them this, like the the fertility doctors. So I don't know. That was just a little sort of unrelated rant, but. um, Yeah. It's a different world. I mean, the world of fertility is its own separate world of, you know, you're dealing with timing issues. There is a, you know, there is a point where you get uh, follicle depletion and you you lose. Yeah. It's impossible. There's a a real thing. And then there's the urgency for doing that. And then Mm -hmm. active reproductive technologies, ARTs, the different various ones, there's, there's all these options, but there's always like, we got to do this now. you like, uh, yeah. And then, you know, a lot of these things get overlooked. Like for example, if you're 36 and now your ovarian follicle levels are not as healthy and you're, they do something like an AMH taste antimalarian hormone. And that's showing like your vocals don't have much time left. Is it going to, the person, does the person have two years to get time to fix their health? Yeah. And so that's a different issue. I'd like to briefly interrupt this conversation to let everyone know that we've got a free downloadable foundations of wellness starter kit. It's available for you right now over at www.rebelhealthtribe.com dot com backslash foundations if you'd like a little help organizing and implementing all your learning from this podcast a gift from our team over at rebel health tribe producers of this show and now back to your episode but going back to the gut come back to yeah. hormones, the point of all of this uh, is that hormones have an impact on the gut and they can have an infunction and so far we've talked about like people that have mucosal immune triggers through other mucosas, like the lung mucosas and nasopharynx mucosa triggering the gut inflammation. We talked about possibly intestinal autoimmunity occurring at the same time as their autoimmunities. We talked about how hormones may have some role with gut function. But I want to also talk about another really common one since we're on this topic that uh, people also are aware of that, which is a lot of neurodegenerative diseases start in the gut. And the most common neurodegenerative that starts in the gut is actually Parkinson's disease. And mm-hmm. Parkinson's disease, they find degenerative changes in, in Parkinson's disease. You know, everyone thinks of it as like, oh, you have low dopamine. And if you take dopamine, it's better. It's actually not that. Uh, Parkinson's disease is what's called an alpha-synucleinopathy. And what that means is there's a normal protein in the nervous system called alpha-synuclein. And in Parkinson's disease, it basically clusters together and, and gets in the way of normal neurotransmission. Like in Alzheimer's disease, there's a different protein. It's called beta amyloid that starts to cluster together. Mm-hmm. And it prevents neurons from synapse. Well, in Parkinson's disease, alpha synuclein starts to build up together and it prevents neurons from firing. And then eventually those neurons start to degenerate. Well, they're finding that, you know, Parkinson's disease, this alpha synuclein actually starts in two places before it even hits the brain dopamine centers where people start to have tremors. And then it starts in the olfactory bulb where you perceive sense and smell and it starts in the gut. And, and, you know, one of the initial presentations for people that have early Parkinson's disease is chronic constipation. And when, you know, when you have, let's say this, this Parkinson's disease presentation in the gut, 10, 20 years before you have tremor, any identifiable oh, wow. symptoms, you have a chronic gut issue that no one can figure out. 
and you have a chronic gut issue and they gut issues, you, you have to take magnesium every day to have a bowel movement or you have to do an enema or you have to eat some really small meals to be able to digest because you eat a large meal you can't handle. It. Those are all signs that it's not a leaky gut, it's not a bare issue, but it's the motility, right? So that's a different mechanism that's completely mm-hmm. So if people have chronic motility issues, we talk about hypothyroidism, maybe something that has to be investigated, but also it could just be a neurodegenerative disease that starts in the gut nervous system and starts to degenerate that away. And when a person loses their intestinal motility efficiency, meaning how their small intestine and large intestine contracts so they can move food, then they also will end up with leaky gut and dysbiosis, uh-huh. food sensitivities, those other things, because it changes the environment of the gut and changes the pH, yeah. creates this fermentation and lactation. So, you know, they can go and get a comprehensive digestive stool analysis and they have, you know, dysbiosis and they have, I don't know, a high methane. And they high have dysbiosis because their gut isn't moving. Right. Okay. <laughs> like it's, yeah. And then, then the gut is not moving and then they get bacterial uh, overgrowths and then they get inflammation from bacterial overgrowths. Now their tight junctions break and now they have multiple food sensitivities and they, you know, they go there and they'll, they'll see someone and they go, Oh, well, I know why you're sick. You have leaky gut. No, that's not why I know why you're sick. Is it possible clinically to find those clusters of proteins in the gut that are related to Parkinson's? Can, is that, well, they're scanning tests for that. Yeah. They're scanning guts now and finding alpha. You can do an alpha snuclein tracer marker to see that. Once again, what kind of scan is that? It's basically MRI or CT, and depending how it can oh. to trace it. And okay. they can do it, but again, it's commercial, not commercially available. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. But it is possible. It is they, possible. That's, you can do that yeah. tomorrow. Like in the, if you're in a university that has uh, research on Parkinson's, yeah, you could do it tomorrow. Yeah. And there's, there's already- okay. But not commercially available. So not available to clinicians. No. So you'd have to go on the, the symptoms and the, yeah, the history of the patient. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also there's a lot of post-biopsy studies, you know, they do and they, they can see these changes. But in the world of Parkinson's disease research, it's, it's really not even a question. That is where Parkinson's disease is starting, starting in the olfactory bulb and it's starting in the gut. And when it starts in the olfactory bulb, they have found some very interesting connections with that because the people will start to lose their sense of smell. And they've even gone further into the world of research and they found there's actually three really predictive smells you lose in early Parkinson's disease that are, can be predictive. And it's the ability to smell coffee, peppermint, and anise. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's a matter of preference, but I just got sad. So those um, are, those are but really that comes on well before the tremors though, right? 10, 20 years before. Wow. Okay. So you have so interesting. So, so for example, if I'm, if I'm working a person that has a chronic gastrointestinal issue, and then I'm going, why do they have a chronic gastrointestinal issue? And I, first of all, I see, you know what? Their main complaint is a motility issue. I mean, they're not moving their food. So if they have chronic SIBO, like no one's been able to figure out why they have chronic mm-hmm. SIBO and their methane hydrogen levels are always high, right? Why do they, or they have chronic dysbiosis or leaky gut no one can fix and all that. And you go, okay, well, really when we think about your history and your timeline, you're not having bowel movements. And the biggest clue of that is, they have to take something to have a bowel movement, right? They have to take mm-hmm. softener and take magnesium. They have to do coffee enema. That is like ding, 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 red flag, red flag, red flag. As a clinician, you're going, okay, well, that's a motility issue. So then I'm going, okay, well, what's going on with the motility? And you can have like injury to the nerve plexus from an intestinal inflammatory response that's severe or infection in the gut or, you know, those things. But most, most of the time, it's not that. It's since early Parkinson's. And early Parkinson's is, you know, you can start having presentations in your 30s age 30, 35. So they're like, Hey, my gut was fine until I finished graduate school or right? until I got older or until I had kids when they have nothing to do with that. It's just the fact that that's the time in their life when those other things happen, right? Again, association mm-hmm. is positive. So you'll check them and then you'll see like, okay, they're having some smell taste issues, but that, you know, some of the earlier signs of Parkinson's will also be slowness of movement. They'll just get slower. If, you know, you get to that as an initial presentation way before tremors. So they just know they're not moving as fast as they used to. They consider that as being old age. Mm-hmm. And then they also start to get rigidity in the early stages too. Rigidity just being stiffness. And what's interesting about the rigidity is it starts in one limb first. So it'll start as a frozen shoulder or a frozen hip first. Like a tight shoulder they can never release. Hey, I've got this tight shoulder. I, I, 
I, I released it. It only lasts for like a minute. Keep so they'll go to a massage therapist twice a week. Yeah. So someone who yeah. like can't smell coffee and anise and has chronic gut issues and has a chronically tight sores, they can't release all the time. Yeah. Start a Parkinson's protocol right away. Well, that might be Parkinson's. Yeah. Right. So that's, yeah. another, that's another really common mechanism. And Parkinson's disease is only second to Alzheimer's disease. And Parkinson's disease happens much, much earlier than Parkinson's and then Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of people that have age, you know, young onset Parkinson's disease. And I know two people in their forties with pretty severe Parkinson's. Yeah. Friends of mine. So this is- uh, one came on like early thirties. I mean, he even made it to tremors in his thirties. So yeah. it's earlier. Right. And one of the interesting things with those individuals too, is they try to prevent using L-DOPA, which is a, mm-hmm. something that helps then they, they did as late as possible because L-DOPA leads to a side effect called tardive dyskinesia where like, have you ever seen Michael J. Fox? Like he's moving all the time and doing all yeah. that, that mm-hmm. movement all over the time. That's not Parkinson's. That's the effect of the drug. That's called tardive dyskinesia. It's from the doping receptors being oversaturated. But when they initially take L-DOPA, their gut function normalizes. It comes back. Yeah. <laughs> we had a masterclass presentation on Parkinson's where they talked about that and said, you know, there's usually initial benefit to taking that pretty significantly. Like they feel a lot better, symptoms reduce, everything gets a lot better, and then they get oversaturated, and then the side effects end up driving faster than the disease. Right. And then you're dealing with a whole nother set of problems that, that come on from doing that. Right. So but the key, key thing is someone who's had chronic gut issues for 20, 20 years of their life and then starts to finally get diagnosed with Parkinson's, the first day they get on alpha, they're like, my gut is normal, it's functioning. And it's like, okay, well, they're. There you go. There we go. It doesn't, doesn't last. It has a honeymoon period, but that's the, the main mechanism. So that's another reason why people have chronic gut issues is that they have some neurological degenerative changes that are happening there. And, and then to go further into that, it doesn't always have to be like neurogenic disease of the gut. There are people that get traumatic brain injuries that catch up with them over time. And then that throws off their brain to gut access. This has been studied and published in literature in animal models and human models were you know, the, the field of the brain gut access and the gut brain access are areas of very exciting, yeah. uh, you know, focus, uh, very exciting topics in research. So now they have, you know, all these people excited about publishing these, there's even journals on brain gut access and so forth. There's experts both ways. The ones that are focusing on how the microbiome impacts the brain, how the microbiome impacts mood, how the microbiome impacts neurodegeneration and neuroprotection. And then there's the others that are studying traumatic brain injury and how it impacts the gut. Mm-hmm. So... One of the interesting things about traumatic brain injuries are that traumatic brain injuries change the brain forever if the injury is severe enough. And if you lose consciousness and have a severe blow to your head, you, you, you may have had these changes happen and not even know it, right? And this is where these immune cells in the brain called glial cells get activated and they get primed. And then over time, it's like a little fire that just spreads. So, you know, there's been a lot of understandings of traumatic brain injuries over the years, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and there's been a lot of uh, research and attention focused on NFL players, and hockey players, they have brain injury, mm-hmm. have problem boxers. CTE. Right? Yeah. And soldiers getting blast explosives surgery and then having chronic issues and PTSD after, after head trauma. And this is all linking back to these glial cells that get overactive. So mm-hmm. there's a, a term in, in the world of neurophysiology called primed glial cells. So these glial cells, immune cells are normally there to clean up the brain. You know, our neurons uh, eventually have proteins and branches that need to be digested and, and eliminated out of, our, out of our brains to keep our brain healthy with clear synaptic pathways. You have debris, just dead cells that need to be cleared out of the way. And these microglial cells normally do that. So they're really protective and healthy for us. But if there's a trauma to the brain, that injury to the brain turns these glial cells on so aggressively that they don't turn off. Mm-hmm. Now they don't have to have unhealthy neurons to digest. They'll just digest normal neurons and then they'll just create inflammation. And then they'll just have this forced fire, just start to injure and destroy the rest of the brain. And it kind of spreads from where the injury was to these different regions. And, you know, for some people. I learned about this from you. You did a presentation on glial cells for our brain and nervous system masterclass right. a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I made changes to my own life after that uh, you yeah. talked about fasting and certain anti-inflammatories that make it through the blood brain barrier so i got some of the apex resvero tumero 
And I started implementing more fasting. I do a three-day fast once a month. And I usually do like a one-day fast like every week or pretty frequently. And I've noticed less severe. I have really severe ADD, ADHD, and it's less and less brain fog. And by the third day of my fast, I feel like a different person. Right. Like I feel, I get physically tired. Like I don't feel, some people are like, oh, I feel so amazing on the third day of a fast. I could like run a marathon. Me? No, I don't feel physically super awesome. Like I'm tired. Like I'm hungry and kind of, I don't want to go run a marathon. But mentally, it's like someone turned the lights on or someone turned off the disco ball or whatever the yeah. the thing is. And yeah, I, I actually, that's, I've made more changes to my own habits in life based off that presentation than probably any of the other ones I've recorded. Wow. Well, that's awesome to hear from all the, you know, your experience with yeah. people. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, I recognize so much in myself and what you were talking about in the presentation. I do have multiple head injuries where I lost consciousness. I do. I played soccer. I played football. I played basketball. I did really dumb things that led to some of those as well that had nothing to do with sports. And I've been in car accidents, whiplash. Like I have, I could check a lot of boxes on brain injuries and it really makes a difference. The fasting makes a huge, huge difference on my concentration. Yeah. And actually you're, you're you're promoting autophagy and most likely getting Mm -hmm. rid of Primal cells because that's the only way you can get rid of them, right? Like the deactivated ones. Yeah. The primed case, glial cells. Based on animal research, we have to just assume on humans, we're never going to be able to do the human trials of yeah. Kind of yeah, because you're not going to like bash somebody in the head with a hammer and then try to fix them. But yeah. uh yeah, grateful luckily those types of things are banned now. But but that brings us to the point that's the only way we know of physiologically that you can get rid of the prime glial cells yeah. is through autophagy. Yeah, well, there's things you can do for every single one of the things. You can do things for early Parkinson's. You can do things for mm-hmm. autoimmunity, right? There's always, but the concept is like, what's, but you can't do anything unless you know the mechanism. Mm-hmm. So another, so some, for some people that do get traumatic brain injuries and prime glial cells, they will over time lose their integration of their brain gun access. And as they lose their integration of the brain gun access, they get chronic motility issues also, just like Parkinson's disease patients. And in animal studies, and we may have showed them, I may have shown them in that talk, but they injure the brain and within two to three hours, there's intestinal permeability that takes place and there's severe inflammation in the gut that gets triggered once those microglial cells get activated. They actually send messengers down via the vagus nerve to the mucosa and then those uh, gut cells can become inflamed and overreactive. And as with no brain, offense happening to the gut, this is purely just from the brain, yeah. the brain it, injury. Yeah. And even researchers know yeah. brain injuries release zonulin. And mm. zonulin is opening Which up. Which leaky gut. Yeah, but zonulin is opening up the tight junctions of the brain because once you use an injury to the brain, the barriers have to open up to bring in T cells and B cells to help clean the debris and deal with the injury because the injury is just responsive as if it's an infection. But that doesn't happen locally. That no, happens, happens systemically. So now you get a yeah. brain that also opens up the gut barrier. So now you have zonulin. So now you have a mm. leaky gut, leaky brain, gut on fire, brain on fire, and chronic gut issues. And you could be doing everything you want for the gut, but unless you address the brain inflammation and the neuroglia, like you, you've been doing and other things, yeah. you, you may not be able to really fix the gut. So there's a whole other population of people that have chronic gut issues that have, you know, these brain injuries, uh, microglial priming that have caught up with them over the years. Now their brain gut access is dysfunctional. And so then- for practitioners where this would come in would be, you know, extensive case history, like looking at. Does this person have brain injuries? Do they have, like you said, like the shoulder or the hip issues? Do they have smell issues? Do they have motility issues? Like what is like looking at the extensive history? Because some of these, I mean, you're talking about animal studies and some human studies that like clinicians today can't run those types of tests. So there's no way to, you're not going to scan somebody's head for glial cell activation. No, it's actually more, it's more, it's it's not that hard to diagnose and figure figure out. Because first of all, number one, you'll... Well, some red flags, let me show you some red flags. One of the red flags would be like a patient that says, don't give me a lot of supplements. I can't swallow. I got to take them one a small bite at a time. So swallowing is an aspect of cranial nerve nine and 10 vagus. So ultimately the, the intermediate between the brain and the gut is the vagus nerve. And, and the vagus nerve has windows of examination potential that we can look at as, as clinicians. So the vagus, first of all, is involved um, with swallowing. And it's also involved with raising the palate. So as a clinician, like we can look at someone and have them say, oh, we can see if their palate moves. 
But sometimes it's not just as simple as your palate moving. It's that if you repeat that test like 10 times in a row and have them go like, ah, oh, ah, oh, ah, oh, is it the same? Four or five, it just stops moving. And that's not normal. So you just oh, no. the whole area of fatigue. So when they go and get an exam, they go, hey, the eye reflex was intact. Yeah, because they did it for one second. But when there's injury, there's less mitochondria in those neurons. And when you re- repeat that movement over and over again, and then you see it not work anymore, that's a problem. Like it, most, like if you have an injury to your brain, you may be able to move your arm once if they mm-hmm. hit this, this, this specific region. But if you keep doing it, then you, your arm just may freeze because it doesn't have the, the fuel there. So we'll see gag reflexes that uh, are unresponsive. We'll see the palate muscles not move. We listen to their gut. We don't hear any gut activity. That's like the clinical like ding, 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 red flag. And they're like, hey, tell me about your brain injuries. Tell me about what's happened in the past. And that's when you start to find these traumatic brain injuries that have caught up with them. And that's when you start to suspect the brain got an access issue. So you, you, you will see examination findings of, of the palate not moving and the, and the gag reflex being abnormal. And you can listen to the bowels and hear lack of activity there. So those are what triggers you into like as a clinician. We te- and I teach all this to practitioners, as you know, you talked about earlier at the Crosby Institute, where I teach practitioners how to do functional medicine. And, uh, you know, we have 3000 practitioners now from all over the world taking courses there, but, uh, you know, it's a thought process. Like it's not, it's not a curse. Like when this is, this is the frustration for me as an educator to, to functional medicine practitioners. It's like, no, their chronic gut issue isn't because they don't have this new strain of probiotic or this new, you know, new enzyme or special thing. And there's more foods to, to, to limit. And then it goes down the step process is an intestinal motility issue, which would be more things like neurodegeneration or traumatic brain injuries or you know, dysfunction that gut brain access or actually brain gut access. Is it a chronic inflammatory state? Is it a chronic inflammatory state? Because other mucosal things are being a trigger. Is it a history of autoimmunity? Is it intestinal autoimmunity that has been identified? So those are- Thyroid. Is, is it is hormonal, is it metabolic? Is it a mm-hmm. little things that are impacting immunal tolerance? And then, you know, you just go through the steps and it's like, there is no mysterious gut issue. There, there's, they're there and there's reasons why they're there. Some are easier to manage, some are harder. Like if you get diagnosed with early Parkinson's in the early stages, you can make a big difference. If you get diagnosed to the point you're 10 years, 20 years into it with tremor, your outcomes can, your prognosis will be much, much worse, right? Hmm. You have just uh, immune tolerance and inflammatory issues happening throughout your pulmonary mucosa and gut mucosa and just a couple of hormone imbalances and I don't know, a little bit of stress and uh, not a healthy lifestyle. You can have your total, you can have chronic gut issues despite all the supplements and diet restrictions you're doing, and those need to be addressed. Or you could have severe autoimmunity that is really active and you may may have a very, very hard time getting your gut under control because your autoimmunity is so rubbed up that you may not be as responsive to diet restriction lifestyle. But those are all the, all the reasons. Yeah, Yeah, the gut's almost, I mean, instead of, I mean, it, it obviously... It is possible that something going on in the gut starts or happens in the gut. We're not totally discrediting that that's even a thing. It's just okay. these are a ton of different ways that the gut almost is the canary. Yeah. Like it's the first symptom that people will notice for a lot of different conditions that they may think are not yeah. them or they're not even looking at it or it's unrelated or um, right. they're looking at the cart before the horse. Yeah, um, it's not a philosophical thing. thing. It's basically a diagnostic. If, if you have mm-hmm. gastro, so if you eat terrible and you have processed foods and, and mm-hmm. you, know, you, you probably will have bloating, distension and gut issues, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you should. Like you <laughs> yeah. So that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So, yeah. And, if you, and if you eat really healthy and you eat anti-inflammatory foods and you have lots of fiber and you don't eat processed foods and you don't eat fast foods, and even, even more if you take digestive supplements and nutraceuticals and other things, you should have a healthy gut. And if you don't, then everything we talked about is where this comes in. So mm-hmm. <laughs> this, you know, there's, there's a reason why you would have to go deeper. It's, it's not based on the philosophy. It's just based on what the clinical outcome is, right? So everything a person puts in has an outcome. And then all, all we, we need to do is go, what's, you know, what's, is an issue with what they're doing? Is there something else that's, that's there? And that's, that's the topic I think we focused on was really these, these patterns. And, and there are some other, yeah, yeah, yeah. some people can have like chronic gut infections or, you know, uh, those, those do occur as well, but for the most, but some of these other things probably even make you more susceptible to that, because if your motility right. is shut down, things aren't moving. If the hormones are out of whack, the immune system's not going to be working properly. Like it's, that also is generally probably a symptom a lot of the time, not that, a, a original point. driver. That's a good point. That's a really good point. And I've seen that I've seen, I've seen the, the patient come in and say, I keep getting parasitic infections. I keep, and they're, they're spending the past five years 
on different anti-parasitical and cleanses and think their issue is like getting these bugs and bugs just these parasites just love me yeah right (laughs) yeah yeah but parasites and bugs like they like the place where they can live right it's not personal it's 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 comfortable there for them and why like infections too i used to think that the infection caused all the problems and it's more the, the problems open the door to the infection it's like Look at what, what we've dealt with with the current pandemic situation. It's the people with a whole bunch of problems, the infection takes hold and is a lot worse and puts them over the edge of what their body can handle. It's like the, I would guess the gut is like you have slow motility of hormones out of whack. You have all these other things going on. Bugs are going to be like, hey, this place is sweet. Let's go here. Yeah. We, can, we can set up shop here and this is going to be okay. Yeah. And, and all these things, you know, add layers and layers and it becomes frustrating obviously for the person dealing with it because very frustrating mm-hmm. for the practitioner but i think the most important thing is to understand that these concepts are there and to dig and to kind of make sure that I, I would say the main takeaway message of this whole talk is if you're doing everything right eating you're eating well you need to shred mm-hmm. it off and things but eating well all i just mean is like you're not on a standard american diet you're eating vegetables and mm. you're eating like we used to, like people used to live <laughs> yeah like food like right, real food you're eating food and especially if you've taken supplements and you eat fiber in your diet and there's something and, and uh, there's something off and even more so if you mm-hmm. eat strong effort and interventions trying all these different things to fix a leaky gut and change your diet and do all these things and that hasn't worked that is a red flag to go deeper and it may not be that the gut is the cause of all these, but the gut is being being impacted by other physiological fa- factors that need to be addressed. And, and we talk about this and when we talk about it, you know, it sounds so obvious, like, well, yeah, of course. But you know what? In the real world, no one thinks about this or very few people do. And mm-hmm. this is why you have so much confusion and so much frustration. And it goes all the way from practitioners that don't understand this all the way down to patients frustrated, searching all of the internet for clues and suggestions. So Good for what you're doing here, Mike, to getting the information <laughs> yeah. to people. And- <laughs> hey, man, I, I, I don't know how I got into this, but I sit here and I interview brilliant people talking about incredible things all the time. I've recorded probably 30 podcasts in the t- last two months. And just last night, I was interviewing Dr. Eric Gordon, who's up in the Bay Area. He works with Robert Navio on cell danger response studies and, and things of that nature and was getting into all of that. And I just feel like I have a front row seat at the most cutting edge conversations that are happening. And I, I'm grateful for it. It's, it's, it all makes sense though. It's all super complex and it's simple at the same time. Like it's the mechanisms by which everything happens are really complex and understanding the connections between them exist. That's simple. And it makes sense. And of course they're there. So I tend to lean more towards the latter. I don't dive into the super heavy biochemistry. I'm not a biochemist, but I always, the lines connecting everything always make sense. And there's no mistakes. Like the body doesn't, nature doesn't screw up. Like there's not accidents. So if something's going on, there's a reason for it. And the, it's just me or it's just because it's me uh, answer is not, it's not just you. Yeah. And so if people do want to dive deeper, I think you've got a a program, it's a practitioner program, but really good information. Gut Health Solving the Puzzle Online program. Is that your gut yeah, training well, or is that I something else? Have, I have two educational arms. One is for healthcare professionals, which is the Karazi. Okay. And that's okay. uh, that's really for people that, that have a license in practice, right? Okay. But then I but then I have another educational arm, which is where I write books for the public and I have some online programs. Yeah. So that's the have- online one, the Gut Health Solving the Puzzle. Yeah. So in a way for me, okay. well, what I've realized we'll to that below the video. Yeah, I got out something. That's that's for that's for that's for me walking a patient through all mm-hmm. the steps they may need to go through. And then partly because there's not enough there's not enough practitioners out there to go deep enough for what the mechanisms are. So in that course we teach them how to how to go through the steps and understand things. And I think with modern technology, like writing a book is not as efficient as putting together an online video course and program that that walks them through everything step by step. Yeah books and videos not anymore i don't think so so the gut health stuff in the puzzle is my attempt to share with the non-practitioners looking for their own solution that's at dr k news drknews.com we'll put all the relevant links i'll even link uh we'll put the link to your site we'll put the link to that underneath here for the people who want to investigate their own situation 
And uh, we'll put a link to the practitioner trainings too, because we do have practitioners that watch and listen to our interviews and podcasts, especially when certain people like yourself are on. I know that draws more practitioners. So we'll throw that down there to make it easier to find as well. So if you're looking to solve your own puzzle or you're a practitioner looking to increase your skills and awareness and ability in your practice, we'll have something down below. As always, I learn so much whenever we talk and I appreciate the time. I know how busy you are and it's always a pleasure and we're really grateful that you take the time to do these. Pleasure. My, my pleasure to always uh, talk with you. Maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll record a short thing sometime in Europe this summer. So yeah, that'd be fantastic. We'll, we'll do a food tour of uh, what real food looks like at a market in France or Italy. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Dr. K. Pleasure. And that wraps up another episode of the Natural Evolution Podcast. Thanks for listening, and please check out the links in the show notes below to learn more about our guests and grab your free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit, which will help you implement what you're learning here and make powerful shifts in your health and your life right away. Just go to www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations, and you can be started in only a few minutes. If you enjoy the show, please drop a rating, review, or subscribe to stay in the loop with future releases.